Now we're going to take for our scripture reading the 14th chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah. That's the second to last book in the Old Testament. These minor prophets sometimes can be hard to find. But uh, this is fairly easy. And it's the 14th chapter and we'll begin from the first verse. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and the spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth, and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Ezel. Yea, ye shall flee, like as she fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. But it shall be one day, which shall be known to the Lord, not day, nor night. But it shall come to pass, that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day, that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. And all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepress, and men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And so reads the inspired word of God. And the text later on shall be at the end of the seventh verse, where it says that at evening time it shall be light. Now we'll take a reading from the New Testament, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and the fourth chapter. And we'll begin to read at verse 11. Chapter 4, Ephesians, and reading from verse... We'll actually read from verse 10. Verse 10 of Ephesians 4. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers 
for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour, working with his hands the things which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And we thank God for his inspired word. Now shall we pray. I'd like us to turn, please, to the passage that we read in the prophecy of Zechariah, 14th chapter. And um, this prophecy of Zechariah, just to give you a little bit of the background, is uh, set in the days when the people of Israel were just beginning to come back out of captivity in Babylon, you know, the 70 years They were carried away captives into Babylon. And there is a kind of a forward party, you may say, that comes back 
to start to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. And they, interesting, very significantly, as we learn here, the very first thing that they start to do is rebuild the temple. That's very significant. They see that there's going to be nothing really worthwhile in the city uh, unless there in the center of it is the temple of God, unless God is in the midst of them, as it were, and God's precepts and God's principles and God's ways are known. And to rebuild a city or to build a civilization, uh, that's what you need to build a life. Uh, You need God at the center. And they've got their priorities right. They're starting off building, rebuilding the temple. And there are two men who are particularly responsible for that work. Uh, One is Zerubbabel and the other one is Joshua the high priest. And they're having not a very easy time rebuilding the temple. On the one hand, there are enemies who at all, every opportunity, seeking to destroy and seeking to hinder their work. And perhaps more than that is the lethargy of the people who are supposed to be doing the building. True prophets are raised up to get this work moving along. And one of them is Zechariah here. And the other one is Haggai, the previous book uh, in the order of books of the Old Testament here. And these two men, Zechariah, I should say, and Haggai, they have two different approaches to uh, getting these workers to work. Um, Haggai is more direct. Um, He uh, accuses them, you remember, and he says, Oh, oh, the... Oh, you people that dwell in your sealed houses. You know, is it time for you to be building your sealed houses while the temple of God lies in ruins? He is very direct and to the point. Whereas Zechariah has a, you could in a way say a milder approach, but perhaps in a way, uh, well, let's just say a, a different approach. And his approach is this. He's seeking to set before these people really the significance of the work of rebuilding the temple. For instance, he starts to say things like this, well, a temple, there must be a priest in it. In fact, there were many priests, but there must be a priest there. And that priest is pointing to the high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in a temple, there are sacrifices And those sacrifices are pointing to the sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice, our Savior Jesus Christ. And in the temple there is blood shed by these sacrifices. And that is pointing to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And what you are doing rebuilding this temple is a small uh, part of a vast work of God which is resulting in the redemption and the salvation of a multitude that no man can number. It's bringing to pass the new heavens and the new earth, which are beyond our comprehension. This is no small matter that you're involved in, and therefore, you know, go to it with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And that is the sort of approach that uh, Zechariah has. And that brings us then to our passage here. Now, the first part of the passage, and and I should say this, 
The writings here that we're reading and are before us are, as you know, they're apocalyptic writings. In some respects, they're picture writings. They are figurative writings. That's, they're not to be taken uh, as actual writings, although they're absolutely true. They're describing things uh, in, in a way uh, that uh, really uh, draws our attention to them. So these first words are, are somewhat troubling, but I'll explain them in a second. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, etc., etc. As if to say, there are times when God judges his people. There are times when things go mightily against them because of their sins. And these people have already experienced something of that. Or they would not have been 70 years captive in Babylon. And all the discomfort and all the trauma of that. And their city now lying in ruins. There is such a thing as the judgment of God. But then the rest of the verses here from verse 3 onwards are full of encouragements. And this brings us now to what Zechariah is doing. He's seeking to encourage these people to labor on and to give them a vision of what they're involved in. So uh, we'll turn to, to verse uh, uh, we'll turn to verse 4, where it says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Well, if I had turned to verse 3, we would have said, when the, when the time seemed to be the darkest. I must miss that out. Uh, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the, de- in the darkest hour. Then comes this encouragement. And his feet shall stand in that day, Upon the Mount of Olives. What does that mean in everyday language? Well, it means this. God stands on a vantage point whereby he can see everything. Apparently, if you go to the Mount of Olives, you may have been there. But apparently there you can get a a panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. And in those days, you would literally be able to see everything that went on. In the city. So he's saying this, Zechariah's saying this. God sees everything. And it doesn't just mean he sees everything, it means he knows everything. And it doesn't just mean he knows everything, but he controls everything. And his hand is upon the tiller of time. So fear not in dangerous times when things seem to be all in a turmoil and we don't know where they will end up. God sees and God knows. That's the first thing. And then the second part of that same verse, it says, um, And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Now the cleaving of the Mount of Olives has to do with a way of escape. As if the Mount of Olives in one sense stands as a a barrier. And I, I won't go into the history of this, but when times before when Jerusalem has been besieged, the people of God have been able to escape. Certainly in uh, the early days of Christianity, the Christians did escape when uh, Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans, or Titus and so on. They, they were able to escape. And it's saying in the darkest times, 
God makes a way through through the mountains of obstacles or whatever they are for, for the Christian. And you know that in your own experience. Things have happened, things have looked bleak, things have gone wrong or whatever, but you're brought through somehow. And even death itself, we're brought through it in the end uh, to that place of glory beyond the scene. And so a way of escape. And so you start to go through these, uh, these various verses. I, I, I'm not going to spend a long time uh, talking about each one of them. But it says uh, in verse 5 there, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. What is Azal? Well, if you look it up, it's a place far away. Indeed, it's a place of safety. So there will be a way of escape. And there will be a bringing to a place of safety. And so it's saying that. Then verse 6 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. Well, I don't really know what that verse means. I think when Martin Luther comes to that verse, he says, I give up. (laughs) He didn't know what it really meant. But some people say, uh, it might be an, an allusion to, to uh, Catherine when it was neither light nor dark and it was darker than midday and so on. It may be that, but I don't really know. But it shall be uh, one day, verse 7, the same sort of thing. That it, uh, No, it's not the same thing. But it, it shall come to pass, and here's our verse, that at evening time it shall be light. And that's what I really want to talk about this morning. But we'll just look at the 8th verse. Almost, I mustn't leave that out. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea and half of them towards the hinder sea. In summer and in winter it shall be. When living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. That's really the gospel, isn't it? The gospel of Jesus Christ is depicted as living, living waters. If Christ is in your soul, there's welling up a well of water uh, that shall not only quench every thirst within you, but supply every need, which shall be refreshing, which shall be life-giving waters and all the connotations that spring out of water. Where there is water, there is life. And where there is no water, there is drought and there is death and there is misery. And so it is without Christ, but with Christ. Every blessing is ours. But then, our verse, at eventide, or at the evening time, it shall be light. At the evening time, it shall be light. There are many promises in Scripture along the same same lines. Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness is one of them. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. For the Christian, everything is moving towards the day or the light, the day of the Lord. Years ago, I'm reminiscing, we used to go to, uh, my parents used to take me to male voice choirs. We were talking about choirs early on. Sometimes there would be a solo, sometimes there would be a duet. And one of the old favourites was Watchman, What of the Night? And it had uh, these lines in it. Um, 
Uh, the night is just waning on high, and soon shall the darkness flee, and the morn shall spread o'er the blushing sky, and bright shall the morning be. Now that is very fundamentally Christian. Through all the darkness, through all the trouble, bright shall the morning be. And so here is our verse about at eventide, evening time, it shall be light. Now, some applications of this same truth. Now, first of all, you could apply it to the conversion experience. The conversion experience. When God begins to convict us of our sins, we feel a great darkness in our souls. We begin to see how dark our minds really are and how dark our sins really are. We might be able to cry out if we know the words, the words of the hymn, false and full of sin I am. We come to some kind of a realisation that that is us. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We begin to realise we're convicted of our sins, we realize that all our so-called good works are really as nothing. Um, pride rules within. And all that I needn't say any more. But bright shall the morning be. At evening tide it shall be light. And the Spirit of God brings us eventually to that state of repentance when we cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the light brings or shines forth within our souls um, you could put it in the words of another hymn long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night thine eye diffused a quickening ray i woke the dungeon flamed with light well that's how it is at eventide evening tide even time it shall be light and so it was and then, thinking about the words of that hymn uh, there, we have another application. There are sometimes when we find ourselves in great troubles. I don't think there's anybody that goes through life without some kind of trouble. And Peter, uh, what that hymn was based on was the Apostle Peter inherits prison. You remember in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12. And Peter was there, condemned to death, and he was to be put to death the next morning. Well, one of the remarkable things about that account is that Peter is asleep. He's asleep in prison, facing the death sentence in the morning. There's another text in the Bible that says he giveth his beloved sleep. And there's an amazing example of it. Uh, and some people say, and while we're asleep, God is still at work because God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And um, uh, I, I heard a, a fisherman say that uh, God, uh, no, the net, the net catches fish while we're still asleep. Well, that could be true. The net catches fish while we're still asleep. God works while we're still asleep. But the point is this. While Peter slept, God was busy unlocking the prison 
doors or bars. God was busy uh, putting the, guard, the guards, the prison keepers, into a deep sleep. God was at work on loosing the chains that bound him. And indeed his chains fell off. And he came forth out of his troubles. We might remember that uh, the church at that time were meeting in Mary's house and they were praying for him. Did they realize, did they expect so great a result from their prayers? But they found one uh, and there it was. And when Peter appeared, they, they could hardly believe their eyes. But God working, God bringing us out of trouble at even time it shall be light. And it is a remarkable thing. It's nice, isn't it, just to think that um, there are evening times of blessing. Sometimes when you've had a good day, when everything has gone well, or you manage to achieve something worthwhile, it's very nice when you come to the evening. Uh, Longfellow talks about something attempted, something done shall win a night's repose. Well, if you'd attempted something for the Lord particularly, or you've done some good deed or brave deed, well, it does win a night's repose. And that's a good thought to think after. And, uh, of course, evening time as well can be a time of blessing. If, before we go to sleep, we have a few moments, or could be a few hours, but maybe that's expecting too much of us. Sometime around the word of God, certainly in prayer. There's a, there's a lovely hymn of Wesley's that goes something like this. When quiet in my house I sit, thy book be my companion still. Uh, my joy thy sayings to repeat, talk all the record of thy will, and search the oracles divine. Till every heartfelt word be mine. And then the next verse, he says, Oft as I lay me down to rest, Oh, may thy reconciling word Sweetly compose my weary breast. Well, to go close the day like that certainly ensures at evening time it shall be light. But then uh, there are other aspects to this. We could go on with personal Trials, troubles will come to us in life. I, I have no need to remind you uh, of that. And some of these troubles seem unfathomable. The world seems to be an unfathomable and unsolvable trouble at this very moment. But light does come at the evening time. You, you sometimes sing uh, hymns by William Cooper. Some call him Cowper, don't they? And uh, we know that he, he troubled, was troubled with depression. And there are not a few people that are troubled with depression. And, and it can be just a, a medical, I won't say just, but it can be a medical sort of reason, can't it? But there is such a thing as, as depression. Uh, and Christians, because William Cooper was, or Cowper was a Christian man, uh, but he experienced this. That God didn't leave him forever in his depressions. And there were marvellous times when he was, you might almost say, miraculously delivered out of these dark, depressing 
experiences that he had. And, and we're going to sing about one of them in a minute. You know the famous hymn, Sometimes the light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. Light in the evening time. We are not sort of um, pessimists as Christians. We look out on the world. We look out on the, on the church, our churches at this time. And we could be tempted into a deep pessimism. And we could be beguiled into thinking there is nothing can be done. And all we can do is sit and watch the horrible decline and dissolution of things. And it will never get any better. It will only get worse. And it, it saps our energies. And it depresses our spirits. Um, well, this sort of a text, these people, remember, are looking at the ruins of their city. Uh, they're looking at some of the, the majority of their population still languishing in Babylon. Uh, and uh, you can understand why they found it hard to get on with the building of the temple. What's the use, they must have said. What's the point? It's all too difficult. and We'll never build all this again. Well, at evening time, it shall be light. Now, it's the story of the church in many ways, isn't it? There are, all the way through the history of the church, there are times of falling away, and then there are times of revival. And there are so many examples in Scripture. It's good to try and get a panorama of Scripture because it, it depicts to us the, the whole way history works, or the history of the church works especially. And you see great times of blessing. And then you see Israel, the church, 400 years, some say, slaves, bondage in Egypt. Imagine if you were there. In that, maybe, some said it was only 200 years, but say it was 400 years, and you'd been there 200 years, and your father was a slave, and your mother was a slave, and all, you were all slaves, uh, and it had gone on from one generation to another, to another, to another. Was there ever going to be an end to it? You wouldn't think so, would you? But there was, there was. You can go back further than that. You could go back to the times of Abraham, what, what changes he had in his life and how he longed for his son. And eventually Isaac is born. Oh, this is it. The tide has turned. Everything is going well. And then you get uh, Genesis chapter 22. Take thy son, thine only son Isaac, uh, to a mountain I will tell you of, Mount Moriah. And there offered him as a sacrifice. You can imagine uh, the poor fellow thought this is it. It's all finished. All my hopes are in this boy. And now the Lord wants me to sacrifice him. Dark night. Hopeless situation. And he's even got to the far part where he lifts up the knife. Ah! But then comes the blessing. Spare him. And then, on top of that, of course, must have come. People say this, but it must have happened. The revelation. We say the revelation to, to Abraham's mind and heart that what he had 
experienced in that was enabling him to see far into the distance when the only begotten Son of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, should come into the earth and die a sacrifice on the cross for the redemption of his people, for the saving of the world. Oh, yes, what sight was given to him then. Talk about at evening tide it shall be light. The light flooded into his understanding and opened his mind to the glorious purposes of God. You, you can just see it all. I mean, we're talking about being in Babylon here. And these Jews, 70 years, say, you, you've been there 60 years. <laughs> and you think, we'll never come out. But they did. And when they did come out, oh, it seemed to be impossible. Oh, we've looked forward to this. But if this is deliverance, I don't think much of it. But as time goes on, they realize... It, this is uh, kept by many, and uh, I, I, I don't uh, disagree with it. They say this is Reformation Sunday, and people commemorate, don't they, the, the time when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. Now, I may have told you this before, but uh, if you'd have gone back 17 years before Martin Luther nailed that, 95 theses up, you would have looked out at Christendom and dark and dismal would have been the sights. First of all, the, the Muslims were, were coming in from the east and they, they got into southern Spain and they were, they were even coming up almost to Paris. They crossed over, over the Pyrenees and were coming right into Europe. And people were fleeing from Constantinople and so on. Oh, it was an, an amazing story there. But it seemed as if Europe would be enveloped by the Muslims. 1500. And not only that, but the church, so-called, was as corrupt, as corrupt, as corrupt could be. Here already they had uh, two popes not long before that, both vying to be the true pope. And at one particular point they had three and the sale of indulgences, and we know all that. How dark was the church? And we hadn't long since had the Black Death. Oh, well, it didn't look very encouraging in 1500. But just a few years to go, and as this day commemorates, God raised up one man. Well, well, there were others before him, we know. But one particular man, and through him, Great change came. At the evening tide, it shall be light. And uh, we just sung it by Charles Wesley. Well, we all know about that great revival. When Christianity, it was said, looked as odd upon a man as the clothes of his great-grandfather. I don't see any of you wearing the clothes of your great-grandfather here this morning, but we know what it means. It was odd. Somebody said... There were only about three or four members of parliament that actually went to church. Never mind whether or not they were real Christians. And another fellow went to every church. This was a parish church in London and uh, wrote down what the preacher said. And after he completed his exercise, he came to the conclusion that it was very hard to tell uh, whether the preacher was a follower of Confucius or, or Muhammad or, or, or whoever he was. It was hard to tell. 
Such was the state. And then, you know, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Uh, and the church came to life again. Um, our friend Matthew Henry, how many of us benefit from his writings? But in his day, the church was in dire straits and he died in 1714. And I wonder, what he felt when he died? Perhaps I sometimes think, did he think, I've done all this writing. I've made this famous commentary. I doubt anybody will ever read it. <laughs> but in that same year, George Whitfield was born. Matthew Henry never knew anything about that. And, and George Whitfield and the Wesleys spent hours and hours on their knees devouring Matthew Henry's commentary and then went out into the countryside and the lanes and the town centres and all the other places re virtually repeating what Matthew Henry said and there was a great revival. You don't know, you see. We labour and we wonder what the harvest will be. Sometimes we get discouraged. Let's bring it back to Bar Birmingham. You, you, we all know about Cars Lane Chapel. I won't make any comments about it now. But when the famous John Angel James went there, he went there from Dorset. And Cars Lane was uh, the chapel that had been uh, built in front of it. I don't know whether there were shops or houses, but you had to go down a little alley to get to it. And then when you got down to the end of the alley, there was the chapel, but there was... So, sort of tenement buildings where people sort of threw their dirty water out through the window and where it ran down a gutter in the middle of the street and it was dirty and it was inhospitable. And then he went into the church to preach and he got into the pulpit and he looked out at the congregation and he said, I, I thought I was looking at an assembly of the ancients. They were all ancient people and he thought, well, is this where I've been called to come to? It's a hopeless situation. But it wasn't. Darkest night comes before morn. And of course there was that great work done. And you could say the same thing about Spurgeon when he went to New Park Street Chapel. It was an area where all the houses were being pulled down and they were building factories and offices. You know, it was becoming a commercial district. There were no local people around about. It seemed like a dead duck of a place. But of course it was the beginning of a great ministry. And we don't know you see. Right now. It does seem. As if the tide is going out. For our Christian churches. For the things we hold dear. The things we hold precious. Going out. Nobody wants to know. But like every tide. There is a coming in. And that's where this verse comes in. At even tide. It shall be light. And. Um, that is the way this world works. There will be a time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And who knows what revival shall lie ahead of us. Ah, some people say, oh, the end of the world is near. Well, I can't say that's not right. Uh, it may be right, for nobody knows when it will come. But all I can say is this. We've been in this sort of a situation before. And the Lord has amazingly, amazingly changed it. And of course, this is what our Puritan forefathers believed. 
uh, and many other great believers. Um, I, I could give you one or two quotations. Um, James Rennick, <laughs> he lived in the 1600s, and he was a man hunted down. He was one of the Scottish covenanters. And he said this, in spite of, he died in the end, he was put to death by, by his enemies, martyred. He said this, there have been great and glorious days of the gospel in this land, but they have been small in comparison of what shall be. Small in comparison of what shall be. And um, again, David Brainhard, Brainhard, the missionary to the, the Indians in America, he said, I had a strong hope that God would bow the heavens and come down and do some marvelous work amongst the heathen. Well, he had a very hard job on his, on his plate, you may say. He didn't live very long. It was so hard. But just think if he'd have had a few rebukes, maybe had a lot of rebukes. Maybe he said, this is impossible. But it wasn't impossible. And he pressed on, knowing that in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It was the same with William Carey, you know, uh, to the Indians. He, um, he was very much inspired by Captain Cook, the great explorer. And uh, it was possibly by reading Captain Cook's voyages, the account of them, that he, 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 he had this desire to go out of these places. But Captain Cook said, oh, it's absolutely impossible to convert the heathen. It's, it's just what can't happen. It's beyond, beyond uh, you know, a, any expectation to do such a thing. Well, he didn't believe him. He, he was inspired by his voyages. But he went to India. And great, mighty was the work. And so texts like this in Scripture are very important for us to, um, to take in hand. I'll just give you a quote from John Calvin and then we'll come to an end. Calvin said this. And remember, there it was in Geneva. And he had the Geneva Town Council against him. Very powerful body of people. Not easy sometimes to get on with. But he said this. But our chief consolation is that this is the cause of God. And that he will take it in hand to bring it to a happy issue. Even though all the princes of the earth were to unite for the maintenance of our gospel. Still we must not make. The that the foundation of our hope. So likewise, whatever resistance we see today offered by almost all the world to the progress of the truth, we must not doubt that our Lord will come at last to break through all the undertakings of men and make a passage for his word. Let us hope boldly, then more than we can understand, he will surpass our opinion and our hope, uh, our labours are not in vain in the Lord. So, personally, maybe you are under conviction of sin. You feel you're not getting anywhere. Press on. Knock and keep on knocking and the door shall be opened unto you. And if you're in some kind of trouble or difficulty, press on. There will be light at evening time. And when we think of our churches and our situations, 
The Lord is in control and he will bring all according to his good purposes at last and we shall be amazed. Well, that's my message for this morning.